Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In part two of our discussion with Dr. Gail Achashka, she explains her research on how our stage of psychological development shapes our understanding and responses to climate change, how women approach the issue differently from men, and why more information doesn't necessarily change any hearts and minds. And she also dives into how climate change calls us to live more fully and deeply. Listen, and you'll hear some intriguing ideas on how we can use climate change to live and grow more fully. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. When you realize that we're constructing consciousness, what else can you construct? You know, there's a huge degree of creativity and like real audacity that can kind of arise in those later stage meaning-making frames. And you can start working on it. You can start working on, and you know, if you see you're down here and you're aware of these higher structures that are wiser, perhaps happier, you know, more effective, and you kind of recognize where you are now, it gives you a direction to move your life and your practice and your work on yourself. Yeah. For very noble reasons. Yeah. And so, and the other thing that you're speaking from as, as well as pointing to is there is a link with a sense of spirit that, that increasingly arises. And this is, you know, as an academic, it's kind of maybe a little bit edgy for me to say that because we don't, I myself don't have like data for that, but I know that there is such data. Some of the psychologists that I've collaborated with have have researched how regular phenomena in life suddenly take on this sort of a spiritual sense. The, the sense-making includes a spiritual grasp or understanding. And so even with climate change, like what that means for us is that we may construe the problem in totally different ways at these later stages. It opens up really different sorts of potentials. I've heard we have collected some data for later stage meaning-making on climate change and it's not published yet. So it's it's stuff that I've been looking at and hoping to do something with later this year. Some of the things that people speak of is how climate change presents us an opportunity to be more conscious of how we live our lives. Like that is not necessarily a statement that you hear every day about global warming, right? So, so there's something, I, I'm saying this to open the door to hope and open the door to some excitement of, you know, it's not, it's not a, a done deal yet. Like we have so much more in our, in our unfolding consciousness yet to bring to bear on this issue. And so the, the, those later stages provide me some of that excitement of what, what might be coming. So just to kind of recap what I said, 
the object of awareness goes from concrete to more subtle, to more meta-aware or like awareness on awareness. The complexity of thought is like quite atomistic or bits and pieces. It becomes more subtle and abstract. And then it becomes more dynamic and flexible and cross-paradigmatic, to use a term from Dr. Robert Keegan. And then this expanse of time and space is quite in the present moment, in the now, and then becomes, you know, towards the, the past and then increasingly past, present, future, greater degrees of the future. You know, you'll hear intergenerational comments from later stages that just don't really come up at earlier ones. And then also it's interesting because a sense of timelessness and like the present comes back, but it comes back in a different way in these later stages, which is also really, really quite fascinating to see. So Roger, does that answer your question or sit along well, with it? Yeah, no, that's a beautiful <laughs> overview of the shifts that you see in and, and, a, and a, a large number of researchers have found occur as adult as development proceeds through yeah. various stages particularly uh, adult stages and you've already pointed to one important implication that john earlier quoted ken wilbur as saying you know, that development is a crucial element of both the cause and and potential solution of any of the great issues of our time mm. you've already pointed to one implication of the developmental progression you've pointed to that is at later stages there are new ways of seeing and understanding and responding to climate change even to the point of seeing opportunities in it can you now take us to your research study in which you use this framework the recognition that people's meaning making changes at different stages and tell us how that illuminated illuminates the different responses people have Mm-hmm. climate change? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe getting back to the notion of the conflation of climate and weather, seeing that that's not a misunderstanding of climate science, but part of an earlier meaning making takes away some of the frustrations. So it immediately softens the quality of communications and engagement. That would be you know, one key component. Another key component is that for us to recognize that our climate science is derived out of like a bandwidth of like one or two stages out of possibly like seven or eight is important for us to recognize a lot of the climate equity and climate justice work is like another of those stages. So we're talking like three out of potentially eight stages are largely the ones in a way setting the frame on climate change as we know it in our current discourse. So, but that leaves out people on both sides of this spectrum of meaning making. And that's an important finding because without recognizing that we're in, we're in our own sort of, we're in our own awareness, we're in our own awareness or our own paradigm as we speak of these things. And without like effectively translating or effectively bridging, we realistically do miss people. So I think that's another really big insight. Another piece was what I was saying earlier about the sovereignty, like crafting solutions out from within the sovereignty of one's own meaning making. I think that's another big insight. What more? I thought it was fascinating to, you know, getting back to the quote by Ken Wilbur about finding what's what you can appreciate in others is sort of a gateway to more generative conversations across difference. 
And so, you know, we did some work with that in the value chain with the different actors that we knew were coming from different stages. And it nevertheless, we got to really generative shared solutions. So it it is, in a sense, it is possible to work across difference. You know, we can find a sufficient middle point of the Venn diagram, you know, without having to erase everybody else's unique expressions to get that, right? So to me, that's an important finding as well. And there's more yet to do on that. That's I feel like that might be a, a good jumping off spot for future research is really on that, given especially given the increasing trends towards polarization. So those are those are just some, Roger, but how do those land? Well, there's what in, strikes me first off is just the sheer number of implications that your research has. That the recognition that First, the general principle, we each of us construes meaning for everything in different ways, but yeah. understands climate change in different ways. But the second, that look, looking at those different ways through a developmental, developmental understanding just mm-hmm. has a lot of implications. And I, I appreciated that it could help us make sense of a sense of different responses. Mm-hmm. But I uh, hadn't appreciated the sheer variety of ways, and I assume there are more too. And you, you, you began to talk about the benefits of recognizing that later stages may have more optimistic or nuanced uh, understandings. Are there further implications of those of later stage implication uh, understandings of climate change? Well, there's two things I want to say on that. One that I find really inspiring is that from what I've seen in the groups we've been working with is there are late stage individuals in, al- in almost every group. You know, it's like so amazing. It's, you know, this isn't in a way, it's actually, it came into one of my papers how, you know, difficulty and hardship can create one human geographer many years ago referred to it as psychic benefits. So even even communities that are that have dealt with difficulty, poverty, a lot of social issues, a lot of now environmental issues, getting through those experiences can produce these psychic benefits. And so there is a way in which, kind of despite life conditions, I know that there was a scholar some along the way who said life conditions are are quite important to consciousness development. And I think what I've come to understand is that 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 those life conditions can be any array of things that encourage one's consciousness to complexify, right? And so the, the kind of good news story is that from what we've seen in in kind of any of these groups, there's always late stage individuals. So that's inspiring, and and you know in a way it just it lifts my heart to think, you know, despite such hardship, there can be folks that rise above it and decide to really thrive and find increasingly more complex ways to understand their world. So that that's very fascinating. The other piece is, as I was saying in, in this data that I've looked at, but I haven't done a rigorous analysis yet, is the new ways to kind of, I don't know, there's a scent, there's a heaviness to climate change. It's got us by the neck. And there's a there's a lot of fear that arises. There can be despondency. There can be, there's groups that are just planning for the end of, you know, life as we know it already, you know, and it's like, it's got a heaviness to it. And what I found most markedly about these later stages, the little, the little that I've been looking at so far 
is that that really changes and there's there's a different sort of lightness around it as like an as an opportunity as a as something that is challenging but in response to the challenge it, it will grow us you know this hope, is hope is emerging yeah. somehow in all this yeah yeah hope within that a greater agency like a, a sense of like oh i've got a place in this story and i can be agentic in how i live my life to resolve it you know so there's those aspects are quite fascinating and we're hoping to do more research on that moving forward i i have a, have a couple of questions a couple of can of worms but mm-hmm. let, me, let me start with the first one is i mean it's a very heavy heavy subject you know yeah a lot of conflict tons of data and you know you step outside and every day i mean the weather it just seems to got more extreme and weirder in my lifetime uh, my mother was from mississippi and she said in september people they were wearing sweater sweaters to go to football games wow. man in the south in september is just hot you know yeah. that, that doesn't yeah. arrive till late november maybe but yeah. what was your calling how did you decide to pursue this subject and devote so much of your personal and professional energy into looking into this? That's a really great, really great question. Yeah. I mean, really, it was, I was, at the time, I was working in El Salvador, and which is a little country in the middle of Central America that's, that has been very deforested. There's lots of environmental issues in the country. They had a really long war during the 80s and 90s. But, it, you know, so the, I was working there on environmental issues and I was in my 20s. And all the work we were doing was, as I was saying earlier, it was like quite outward focused. It's like resource management or, you know, just it was all sort of looking at systems and how to make those systems more sustainable. And I kept on looking around and being like, where are the humans? Like, these, these, particularly these Salvadorans have such spirit and like, they're so, they fought a civil war for ages for justice, you know, for greater social justice. Like we're talking the most amazing spirit. It's like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be more of a focus on that part of the, of these environmental problems, which are not really problems. They're like symptoms. They're symptoms of the way that we're going about our, our life. Right. So that was sort of going on as like a thought process. And I had been working with environmental groups in Canada as well. So it was like both, both, part, both parts of the world noticing the same thing here in Canada. It's like even less, even less focus on humans in Canada. It's like all about nature and the problems that are happening. Right. And then in my personal life, I was like doing a lot of meditation and a lot of yoga. And I was like, wow, you know, these two worlds are not connected. Why, why are they not? You know, so really in my own search for integration, I started looking for frameworks that provided that and found a number of them, you know, a number of holistic models and approaches and transdisciplinary ways to go about, you know, sustainability. But integral theory was one of them at that time. And I would say that that moment like marked a really long trajectory of inquiry for me around how to bring depth into sustainability issues. And, and I mean, I mean that in two ways. I mean it firstly in terms of like the depth dimensions, the depth, the deeper human dimensions, which include, you know, meaning making, but also include, you know, shadow work, how we place, how we use our attention, you know, what we value, all these aspects around that kind of shape that 
you know, going from the values to the action gap, like what's in that moment is very rich and full of, you know, human depth, right? Can you point back to a time, an event when it just went, I've had those kind of experiences in my life. This is what I'm supposed to do. And it's like, no, it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it was during, it was just after I gotten back from El Salvador and I was in Canada and I, I really, honestly, John, I felt like someone had taken a little tiny hammer and like tapped my world and it had like, it had sort of shattered in all these ways, but like light was flooding through. It was like the really, it was like crazy. It was sort of, it was a little bit devastating, but also incredibly powerful and meaningful. But I, I would say it was right around then. But it was, yeah, it had the, it had these two, I don't know, I'd love to ask your opinion because both of you might have some experience with this, but it had these two faces. Like one, it was, there was a devastation to it. There was a loss involved in, in, in that. But then this, this other part was just remarkably profound. It seems like so many of the great growth moves initially, before we, before we make them, they feel like they're going to be a loss or a sacrifice. And only mm-hmm. after we make them do we realize, oh, we didn't have to give anything up. We just had to give up our attachment to it. Right. Yeah. And, and you may be leaving behind the only thing you ever thought you were very good at. <laughs> I, I was a wilderness guide for many years. I was walking down the, a trail and all of a sudden this kind of voice just said, you're done. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think I function in the world very well. What do you right. mean? I don't think I've ever been any good at and I'm done. So that that started a whole inquiry, and fortunately, synchronicities, you know, started to to, to pile up. As Jung says when you get to this deeper voice, some, sometimes it's things these un, unexplainable coincidences falling into line and showing you the way. So mm-hmm. uh, it can be really disorienting and really scary, and like, I don't know if I'm up to this. You know, this is my gig, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. It's so valuable to have have mentors at that time who can point out that this this doesn't necessarily have to have to be a loss. It can really be a, a growth. But but unfortunately our culture doesn't really provide many mentors like that. And it's, yeah. we're very fortunate we find them. Uh, Gail, I want to ask, you know, you made you were in these institutions, these organizations, you saw saw the outward focus on on changing organizations and the way people worked and so forth, but a lack of the human or the in- and the interior. Do you think, well, there's two questions here. To what extent do you think personally that was a function of being a woman? And have you noticed a difference in the number of women who orient this way as opposed to men? Good question. Oh, that's interesting, huh? That is very interesting. I've I've not spent a lot of time looking through that lens on this. I'm not sure. Like I I really don't know. I definitely have. I know a lot of women who work. For starters, they do work more in the care organization, like the care side of the economy, if you will, for nonprofit organizations or for NGOs. So there are more women anyway in those organizations. And I do know there's an inclination towards relationship and process and qualitative, the soft skills. But the thing is, is I know a lot of, a lot of men who do that too. 
and this and the mm-hmm. same vice versa, right? So you know, there's quite a few women who are really skilled in the hard in the hard skills. So I'm not sure if I would necessarily parse it that way. Yeah, and it's not an absolute division, and and the research on gender differences is crystal clear. For the ma- vast majority of differences, with the ex- exceptions of adult males being far higher on aggression and sexuality, but usually differences between genders on in- interests and inclinations and motives is smaller than the diff- than differences within each gender. So, in other words, you know there aren't a lot of bi- there aren't usually big differences, but but one general finding, as you, which you implied, from early infancy, where all the way through adult professions and so forth, is there is more of a tendency for women to, as you said, orient towards interaction, relationship-oriented work, as opposed to men who tend, in general, to focus more on the technical and the instrumental. So, And do you feel that Canada perhaps is a little more further down that road as far as social issues like this? than the United States. It's our projection way down here in the South that you guys are just a little ahead of us on the road. Maybe it's just a little kinder and gentler and more just society that you have going up there. Maybe, like I said, it's just my impression. Well, I mean, we, aren't we still a colony of Britain? We <laughs> <laughs> <Well. laughs> still have a queen. I mean, there is there is an influence, I would say, in Canada, a, a greater European influence, just in some of the ways we've constructed our governance. So there's more, there's, you know, there's universal health care and there's, there's aspects that are, that are different than the States in that regard. Yeah. So our, our liberal political party is like center, right, actually, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's not really left. It's really funny. So we, we laugh about that sometimes like in comparison to the States, but yeah, I, it's hard to say when we talk about when we talk about big social holons, to use Ken Wilber's term, which is basically a sense of social groups are, are part and whole, they're, they're simultaneously whole in and of themselves, but also part of bigger wholes. When we look at a big group like a nation, it's really hard to get any sort of specific and completely factual sense of what's actually going on, because there's so many sub holons within that. Yeah, so yeah. it's tricky. I, I will say, just getting back to what you said about mentorship. I think that there is there is something really important about just being really attentive and mindful around who you spend your time with. Because yeah. then because even just right now we're three people, we are in a social holon. And there's ways in which the center of gravity of that group will pull you up to its its logics and its 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 sensibilities. But if you start going beyond that social holon, it'll also pull you down. And so you just something, you know, choose your social holons carefully <laughs> because they will either grow you or they will limit you. Right. And so, you know, find the mentors you need. If you don't feel that you have them, like go, go look and find, you know, and I, I know that I'm saying that more to your listeners than to you two, because I know you have that, but, and you are the mentors. Yeah. It's about choosing to be mentors with the younger people too. That's a, a very, Absolutely. very important yeah. uh, life stage that hopefully we arrive at. And that's been up for me a whole bunch in the last few years. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it shifts at some point I'm I'm imagining where you go from being a mentee to a mentor and how to make that shift and really own that new seat is, I would imagine it takes some, it takes some courage. 
and it may be an incomplete transition or only only one of the dimensions of transition. There was a there was a man, John O'Neill, who wrote a book on the paradox of success, who, who part of which he interviewed very successful people. And so when I met him, of course, I was very interested. In, well, what what did they do? What worked? Yeah. And he said, they all have mentors. And it's like, what? I thought you had mentors when you're 20s or teens or something. But he said, yeah. no. These people throughout their entire lifespan put a lot of energy into finding people they can learn from, even if it's in specific, just in specific areas, and they may have multiple mentors. So that put a whole different spin on it for me. And really, really speaks to what you're pointing to, Gail, that we are, we are social creatures. We're terribly, we are influenced in ways far beyond what we usually appreciate in terms of what we pick up from each other. We're kind of like tuning forks. We resonate with different states of mind, different values, and we pick them up. And parents know this. I'm sure you know, you would like to be careful about who your daughter hangs out with and so forth. But somehow we we lose the implications as we grow up, and it's not something our culture appreciates yet. Yeah. Yet there are wise people who really do appreciate it and keep looking for such people. Yeah. No, adolescence is almost largely determined by the quality of your peer group. You know, mm-hmm. if you hang out with pretty positive young people, you do pretty well. If you don't, it's going to be really problematic. But my last can of worms, I'd feel incomplete if I didn't ask you this. Now, you've been following global warming issue and looking at the data for quite a few years. How predictable do you think the outcomes of our changing environment are? Can we say, oh, this is going to happen in 20 years. We're going to have more storms, more deserts, more the deserts are going to turn green because of more water coming to the oceans because it's warming up. I mean, or is Gaia, which was an idea that was really popular back in, the, I think, the late 80s and early 90s, is is it a self-regulating system and do we have enough data do we have supercomputers or models or even the wisdom to say what's going to happen as we go through these shifts yeah i mean this is so i'm not i'm not specifically a climate scientist to know specifically the data sets that you're referring to but just to help us make meaning of this we can only predict what is pre- predictable Right. So there's there's large degrees of unpredictability with this particular issue, in large part because those interaction effects were approximating what might happen. But if you get so many interaction effects piling on one another, what may arise is tricky to anticipate. So like the scientists bring the best they can to it. Some of the voices out there that are sort of questioning the climate, the climate action that are that governments are calling for. For they 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 may not they may not fully grasp how the science is is being carried out. There's so many scientists around the world doing this, and then they're getting together and sharing all their insights through peer review processes, and then in international meetings. And it's like there's so many checks and balances around what we're seeing and what we're not looking for, what we're not looking at. You know, just there's so many layers of this. I would say that given all of that, we're doing our best to get our mind around what we can anticipate in the coming in the coming decades with the caveat that there could be surprises we did not we weren't able to capture right so that's what i would say but the other piece of it is like and this gets back to one of ken wilber's insights is that there is the physiosphere there's the biosphere and then there's the new sphere and the new sphere is what we're what the space we're in now talking about ideas 
things we care about and love and poetry and philosophy and um, human knowledge, correct? That is what we're really, in a way, working to maintain and sustain because it'll be the first thing to go. Like the, the biosphere eventually will bounce back, right? But it's the new sphere that we may lose. And it's, I think that that's what we, we can tend to forget. There's some anti-climate action voices out there that think it's like an anti-human movement. And in a way, it's precisely the opposite. It's actually so pro-human. It's pro-new spheric. You know, to actually resolve climate change means that we maintain poetry, love, philosophy, knowledge, right? Yeah, I didn't mean to infer, you know, that I'm part of this right-wing thing. Oh, no, no. You know, I just wondered, and, you know, very complex systems are, by their nature, unpredictable, you know? Yeah. But I know things. We we got we got a tornado that misses by a hundred yards when a couple of years ago the place I was staying and just the severity of the of the weather and the hurricanes and tornadoes all over the south now it's just just yeah. it's just really increasing and I don't know what the what you know the cause of that is but most people at any level have any degree of age or awareness have been around for a while will agree mm -hmm. that things are changing very rapidly as far as weather goes. Mm -hmm. And I think you're being scientifically cautious as you in your speaking, Gail. You're acknowledging there are always in complex systems, there are unknown variables, mm -hmm. but there are also very clear trends that have been identified, and a lot of them are, are deeply worrying. And yeah. yet most of us tend to think of climate change as, you know, if we're thinking about it at all, think of it as, you know, slow moving, you know, over a lot of decades. But it seems like uh, there are two things that are increasingly concerning. One is it it seems like the changes always tend to happen faster than the models we had a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's one concerning thing. The other, another is it was beautifully encapsulated by a quotation by David Christian. David Christian is the founder of the so-called big history movement, which mm -hmm. looks at looks at the way history looks at history basically from the birth of the universe through to our current time and, and projections into the future. And he has a beautiful book called Maps of Time. And in there, he talks about, as he's looking into the future about climate change, he says, perhaps the most worrying aspect of global warming is its unpredictability. Mm -hmm. Climatologists know that climate systems, like many other chaotic systems, are subject to sudden, sharp changes. They may change slowly and predictably for a time, then become unstable for, before switching quite abruptly to a new state. And it seems like that's really one of the worries we have here, that we, that incredibly complex systems like climate can move you know, glacially or slowly for a while, but then they can make very rapid transitions. Does that, does that resonate? I think that that does resonate. And the other piece to that is the cascade effects and the knock-on effects. So, you know, we're, we're probably the first thing we're going to start experiencing, experiencing is something that it, it's kind of a, a jaggedy line back to climate change. So, for example, food getting more expensive. You know, that's going to be the first sign of climate impacts at, at, at a certain level because the farmers aren't able to produce the food in the quantities and in the, in the ways that they had been. Already, they're having to add more inputs onto crops to get the same sort of yields. So, you know, we, we don't, 
that's the tricky thing about meaning making is that if you're wanting a direct line, cause and effect, you may not find it. It's going to be a jaggedy line that's tricky to draw. You know, it, it's not straight, but it is, it is the case. So those knock on effects add that into dimensions of existing poverty and existing inequality so that those who will feel the, the greatest impacts will be the ones that are already in the, in the, in the more difficult situations. These are, these are what worry me at night, you know, whether we hit those really big moments where something unpredictable does switch and the state changes, as that quote said, my question is whether that happens, maybe I spend less time thinking about what more I spend time thinking about is if that were to happen, how are we going to show up? How are we going to be with each other? How are we going to make sure that the neighbors who are the, the lead, they're already going to the food bank. There's 8 million Canadians going to the food bank. Is that right? It's a huge number. It might even be more this year, just because of the situation that we're in, you know? So it's like, how are we going to show up with, with folks that need that kind of help in, in the moment? So I think I spent a bit more time there, Roger, just thinking about, will we, will we slide back into earlier stages and, and act in, in sort of like egocentric, ethnocentric ways, or will we actually bounce forward and care for one another in ways that produce those psychic benefits that I had been describing? Beautiful. And, and this gets us into, into the question of how do you, you're focused on climate change and it's actually of all the, all the many global threats we face. All the, and there are many, many threats that are, that, that are coming at us online. How do you see, and cl it's climate change that gets most of the attention, but, and maybe deservedly so, yet there are all these other threats from pollution to weapons and wars, and you know, it's a long, long, long list. How do you see climate change interacting with these? That's another great, really great question. <sighs> yeah. It's, it's like another whole set of interaction effects. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, we talk a lot about double exposure, my colleagues in Norway and myself, around, you know, communities that are already exposed to certain, uh, one, one set of issues now being doubly exposed because they're also the ones on the receiving end of climate impacts. So there are, there are overlays that produce like different sorts of recommendations for action that come from doing that kind of thinking of like looking at, you know, multiple issues layered on each other. So it's, it's, it's critically important to do that in terms of practice. Cause I know that this, this podcast really kind of comes down to that. I think we need to just ask ourselves like, which, which part of this ball of yarn are we going to pull, you know, and just sort of pick an entry point that you can, that you can dedicate yourself to and know that it's connected to the others. But I think there's a, there can be a propensity to think you have to do all of it and get overwhelmed and then become despondent, right? So just finding, pick one thing and like, just do it with depth and do it with care and, and trust it's connected is, is, is one way that I would suggest approaching that. Roger, I don't know how all these layer on and what it might provoke. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, th I think you're giving a great response and acknowledging that first off, we are facing multiple threats and the many interconnections are just not understood yet. But tragically, they may have interactions and even multiplier effects and so yeah. mutually catalyze one another. But I think part of the big picture perspective with which you're approaching this work and which you're bringing to the scientific world is exactly what we need as we look at civilization, maintaining civilization. 
and that is we are going to we're going to have to avoid what I call the, the single focus fallacies, focusing mm -hmm. on a a mm -hmm. single issue, mm -hmm. a single issue fallacy, focusing on what I call the single cause fallacy that's all due to one particular thing. It's capitalism or it's greed or it's, you know, take your pick and yeah. the single solution fallacy that one solution will will do it all. So mm -hmm. and the big picture integral perspective you are bringing to your work and research feels like a partial antidote in that it is a big picture picture integral perspective is one which recognizes multiple issues multiple causes and multiple possible solutions so mm -hmm. so i guess that's mm -hmm. feels like one important piece of the puzzle and gail you we're coming obviously coming towards the end of our time here but i have one key question, which you just started to answer very beautifully. So thank you. And that was, you are not only a highly respected scientist who's published widely and created a number of innovative ideas and findings. You're also an activist. So what would you tell us? And you just told us something, but what, what would you tell us about how we can be more effective mm -hmm. activists, each, each of, and every one of us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was just noticing that I had said, like, pick a thread of the big ball of yarn and, and know it's connected, but just work on your piece. And then you said, but don't fall into the single solution fallacy. And I absolutely agree. And I wanted to just go back and build on what I was saying, which is that, you know, despite it being such a poly crisis, you know, and, and such a heavy one at times, creating the future right now, like creating, you know, really seeing that you do matter in the choices you make, the extent to which you cross your own values action gap, you know, the extent to which you take a fragment, know it's a fragment, build out your mental model, do what you can. You know, there's, there's a way in which that scales. And we're, this is really new research. We just submitted an article today that looks at this. When it comes to scaling sustainability, we tend to think linear. We think small to big, you know, and, and, and we do something weird. We do something weird where we, we know that we individuals collectively created the problem of climate change. There's no one else who did it. We all did that. But when it comes to solutions, we don't honor that we individuals count. It's mm. like on that side of it, we kind of erase the role that we play. And so we're trying to kind of shift that narrative and present a new one that says, okay, linearity has its place, but we're going to think in more nonlinear terms and see that there is an enactment and in, the, in this moment that has ripple effects, effects across time and space. You know, there is an, a way that we're entangled where I, I cross my values action gap. It somehow means suddenly Roger and John, you are, you know, and it just, it provides sort of a, it contributes to some sort of a field where that becomes more possible. And I'm, I'm here thinking of some of the scholars like on morphogenic fields and there, there is emergent research on this, but we haven't really looked at it in the, in the, in the way that sustainability scales. And I just invite us all to realize like we have a big play in this more so than we realize. And just to kind of, I don't know, trust yourself and just do what you can, even though it seems like a small thing, it still matters, it still counts. Yeah, that is, that's a, that's a great way to kind of wrap this up, but you find your kind of soul-centric path that you're supposed to do, and you're an individual, that 
requires humility in the face of the universe and, and the greatness of it. But there's also an intuition. I think Andrew Harvey is a, a poet mm-hmm. and a that I really like. He said, God has an agenda. In other words, and we don't know what that agenda is, but if we can find out our own particular calling path mm-hmm. and that part well with increasing skillfulness, wisdom, compassion, then we have to trust the bigger pattern that we're doing what we can do and we can we can find some some centeredness or some peace in that because mm-hmm. we're doing our part. And as you said, we do matter. And that is an intuition that grows as we get in touch with these deeper uh, layers, layers or levels of ourselves, if you will. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Well, anything else you would like to add? Hmm. What is the tagline for Deep Transformation Podcast? Self, Society, Spirit? Self, yes. Beautiful. I just want to sit with that notion. Self, Society, Spirit. It's, you know, finding our own soul-centric path, as you said, John. So beautiful. And using this moment of unsustainability and, in fact, climate change as an invitation into our deeper, our deeper expressions of self society and spirit beautiful yeah Uh, thank you thank you for that and gail thank you for this dialogue and for the wonderful work you're doing and many many contributions and the ways you are expanding our understanding of this issue and some of the great issues of our time thank you so much what a joy thank you thank you both for having me today's episode was brought to you by iwake technologies Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.